Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak. This week, I'm talking with Melissa Eleanor, sociology PhD student from the University of Georgia, about her research on emotional responses to racial discrimination. This is episode 36 of Untenured Tracks. for my dissertation. Mm -hmm. So what I am looking at broadly is understanding emotional responses to experiencing racial discrimination and then also translating that to understanding how those emotions affect your behavior. So I'm doing a mixed methods dissertation, but Mm -hmm. the part I'm really, really excited about is the experiment that I'm running. So I do research about race, but I'm also a social psychologist and I'm trained in experimental research. Mm -hmm. Um, So the experiment will be an online task where I'm going to recruit a sample of black participants and they will be told that they'll be working on the task with a partner. Mm -hmm. And so they're not going to receive much information about the partner, but they'll fill out an informational sheet and their partner will also do the same. So the information they'll get from their partner will be very vague, but the information that they'll get is that their partner is white mm-hmm. and that they their favorite book and their favorite food. So we want to make race really salient in that instant so that they're under the impression that they're working with a white person. Mm-hmm. And then during the task, they can chat with their partner. When they do the task, there will be four rounds. Mm-hmm. And after the first round, they will be told that Either them or their partner will be chosen to be the leader of the team. Mm-hmm. And then their partner, again, this partner is a computer simulated partner. It is not a real person. So all of these messages that are created are created by me. Mm-hmm. But the participants are under the impression that they're working with a real person. So the chat message they'll receive from their partner will be that, well, they'll probably pick you as the leader since you're black. And so what I want to do is to replicate scenarios where black people feel as if they're in a position because they are affirmative action higher or diversity higher or they aren't um, in their position because of merit. Mm -hmm. So that's what I want to replicate. And then I, after they receive that message from their partner, they go on to a next round of the task. Again, they're still working with the same partner. And then I want to see if their behavior um, in the task changed based on the message they received from their partner. Mm -hmm. And then I also have them fill out an emotional emotional questionnaire after each round. So I want to see how their emotions changed as well. Hmm. So basically, I'm trying to understand how receiving those types of microaggressions affects their um, behavior in terms of deference. So the task I'm using, I'm using measures deference. That's really cool. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, I'm curious. So 
I guess how how far have you had to go to make sure that the simulated partner comes across as real? Does that make sense? Like, is this a, yeah. is this a program that's preloaded or something that like is there is there a script that is like a bot? Like, I'm just I genuinely have no idea how this works. So the task I'm using has been used before by Mize. 2019. Um, so he, so what the task is, is basically you are receiving these, um, you have to answer a multiple choice question. Mm-hmm. And so the right answer has been taken away. So you just have two wrong answers and then you answer the question and then there's a delay and mm-hmm. then you see what your partner chose. So you have the option of changing your answer to what your partner chose mm-hmm. or keeping your answer. Mm-hmm. And so, we're measuring deflection by how many times you choose you change your answer to that of your partners. Mm-hmm. So oh, then, I see. if you're receiving these messages, I want, so my hypothesis is that we're being reminded of you know your marginalized identity will make you more likely to be more deferent. So changing your answers to that of your partners. Okay. So then you may doubt yourself a little bit more. Yeah. No, that's yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I get that part. Um, I'm just, I guess, I'm just curious about like how they can communicate with the partner during it because you said that yes. the partner is going to make okay. this like this, this microaggressive, microaggressive statement. Like, do they have other opportunities to talk with like the the fake partner at all? No. So it'll be after. So that will be the only opportunity. Okay. So they'll get the message from their partner. Mm-hmm. They'll be able to respond, mm-hmm. and then the chat box will go away. Okay. So they'll be under the impression the partner is real because they have they see that see. this person is re- also responding to the questions mm-hmm. and they sent them this message randomly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then so they'll so they'll get the impression that they're working with someone. So we're just okay. setting that seed. I and the reason got why you. Task is because and the you know task has been validated to show that people believe they're working with someone. Yeah. So that's why I went with that one. Got you. Okay, I understand now. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. So. Um, what kind of questions are they going to be answering? So it's like workplace scenario questions. If mm-hmm. you ever applied for like a retailed customer service job and you had to fill out those like scenarios of if a customer comes in and they complain, what do you do? And mm-hmm. so the answers will pretty much just be two wrong answers. So things that you shouldn't do, like, you know, tell the customer off or something mm-hmm. like that. So there's no real right answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, why did you? I guess why did you settle on like using those workplace scenarios as the as the questions? I mean, obviously you're not collecting data on on that part of it. I'm just curious about like why why did you go with that as the um, the content? Okay. So I wanted to be able to extend this research into mm-hmm. things that may happen at work. Okay. Because that is a that is a setting where a lot of black people and people of color experience microaggressions is at work. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's why I had these workplace scenarios and uh, the participants will also be told that we tr- we're trying to understand um, how people work together in teams online. So Mm -hmm. people who do online work, telecommuting. So that's why I chose these workplace scenarios, just to make it feel as if they're in a work setting. Okay. Um, So what types of, like, emotional responses are you anticipating people to have from this? 
So based on the literature and also based on my other the other portion of my dissertation, which is a qualitative component, I'm expecting a range of emotions. Mm-hmm. So primarily I'm expecting people to feel shocked because mm-hmm. you don't even no matter how often you experience a microaggression, the same one, it's still shocking that someone may say that. And um, also anger has been shown to be something that people talk about a lot. Um, sometimes shame. But yeah, so those are the primary emotions that I'm expecting. And then maybe there can be a little bit of apathy just to be like, well, I'm just not going to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. So do all of those emotions then, do you expect that they're all going to have like a similar, lead to a similar behavioral outcome? I don't. So some emotions are more powerful in terms of getting you to act. So mm-hmm. emotions like being sad are less likely to make you do something Mm-hmm. afterwards you know they mm-hmm. so anger is a very powerful emotion and that's more likely to make you act upon something so anger is usually associated with you know um, any types of like civil rights movement it's mm-hmm. usually anger that happens first then mm-hmm. people say let's get together and mobilize to do something mm-hmm. but things like sadness are not really an emotion that people rally around to do something about yeah. it kind of just makes you just stop in your tracks and mm-hmm. not do anything mm-hmm. so that's why i'm expecting that people who get angry will probably be less likely to defer to their partner mm-hmm. because they feel like they want to prove themselves and people who are maybe sad or shocked may be less likely or more likely to defer mm-hmm. to their partners because they're feeling as if they're more helpless in that mm-hmm. situation. Okay, yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, like, I remember seeing, like, a meme about, like, depressive rallies or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, nobody, depressed people don't have don't have rallies. Um, so I totally understand where you're what your um your logic is for this. So um why did you why did you settle on using like a microaggression as the example and not something more aggressive? Yeah, that's a good question. So microaggressions are a lot more common. Mm-hmm. So it's not as socially acceptable to be blatantly racist anymore. So pre-civil rights era, people could openly call you racial slurs and they would not get penalized in society for doing so. Mm -hmm. So when we think of how discrimination occurs in contemporary society, it's a lot more subtle. It's not someone just outwardly calling you the N-word or saying that you don't belong here. Mm -hmm. While that may happen, it's a lot more rare because people know that it's not socially acceptable for you to act this way. Mm-hmm. So what microgra- So the way that racism happens is usually these very subtle microaggressions. And for black people, there are a range of different types of microaggressions. But when you're thinking about what happens in the workplace, it's usually about you being here because of your race mm-hmm. and not because you're smart enough. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of questioning their competence. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Like, it's always interesting to like think about how we can study race um, sociologically, given everything that's going on, and just like I'm, I'm always just interested to hear like how people approach it. Um, I think it would also be cool to see like if like for future work. Like, I'm not trying to throw any kind of problems into your disc. Um, I think it'd be interesting if like the scenarios themselves were. Um, it's like the outcomes in the scenarios that you had were racist too. Do you know what I mean? Like, so like the workplace scenarios and it's like, what would you do in this situation? 
if like all of the answers themselves were were microaggressions. You know what I mean? Yeah, just to, yeah, yeah. just to see like how like adding that as like another another variable into it just to see like how how do people respond so like my partner has really made me mad because they've said something racist to me and now this test is also um i guess like an example of structural or types of racism and like just like what types of outcomes people would how people would respond to that i think would be interesting <laughs> right yeah, i actually think so too so I guess based on my findings for this one, then it would help to, you know, mm-hmm. do something like that where I could see if people would be more likely to choose a yeah an, an, an option that would kind of advantage the person who was victimized over the yeah. person who wasn't. Uh, but also, I forgot to mention for the people listening who are experimentalists, the co- I do have a control condition mm-hmm. where I have uh, people who the message that they receive will say... I wonder what this task is about, LOL. So just uh-huh. like something very, just like not very discriminatory and just yeah. very neutral. Yeah, yeah. neutral like, and, and, and kind of flighty. Too. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then I also forgot to mention that another component is I'm trying to understand how organizational responses to these complaints can mitigate effects of experiencing these microaggressions. So for the people who have like uh, the organization response for the conditions would either be supportive or a little more dismissive. So we're going to have a moderator who is also computer simulated that will send a message to the participants and say, how is the study going so far? And no matter what the response, it could be great, good, bad. I had this person saying something to this to this to me. I will have the organizational moderator say, I will make sure my superior knows about this. And it's vague enough so that even if they say it's going great, that they feel supported by the organization, or it's going to be dismissive where, it's, where the organizational moderator will just say, well, just continue on to the next portion of the study. Okay. And I want to understand if having an organization or a representative of the organization support you mm-hmm. helps to mitigate those effects. So is there any change in the deference behavior in the next round after being affirmed? Hmm. And so the idea would be what? That if, if the organization is supportive of the person, that that couldn't make them more deferential less deferential less deferent but so if, if that will restore their behavior before the before they receive that discriminatory message okay so i'm thinking about like if somebody's angry and is like you know screw you i'm gonna do it my way like i i know what's right and then they get this supportive message wouldn't you don't think that that would i guess it wouldn't make them more deferential i i just think about like what happens if he, if the message takes the anger away at all? Like, would that change their? Is, like, is that possible to to lower confidence? I don't know. That's so, that's weird. So <laughs> what I'm thinking is that if I'm wondering if the organizational message they receive, if it's supportive enough, if it will bring them back to their deference levels from mm-hmm. round one before they received any type of. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So. Trying to understand if it will make a change to bring them back to that level. Got you. And if it makes them more deferential, that's also an interesting mm-hmm. finding. Yeah. So I'm just hypothesizing about yep. what this means. <laughs> uh, but whatever I find will be interesting to me. Yeah. Um, 
Because what I want to understand by having that um, uh, by having that organizational moderator is trying to understand like so we have all of these institutions and companies that say they care about diversity and inclusion, but does it actually work to help their employees yeah. who are marginalized to feel like they can't speak up and be leaders mm-hmm. in their in that environment? Yeah, I was. Yeah, my next question was going to be like, what what do you do with this finding, or like, where do you, where do you see these findings going? Because I could see it being applied to like any number of different settings, you know. But- yeah. So. I guess how I approach my research is to try to figure out things that can work to help (laughs) people to reduce the effects of racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the research is pointing out racial discrimination occurs, and we know that. But then when I teach, you know, we'll talk about teaching, I know, but my students feel defeated. It's like, so now what? Like, I'm just going to experience discrimination, and like, what do I do about that? (laughs) <laughs> because people want to feel a sense of agency. Yeah. So I could point to my research and say, this is what discrimination does to your behavior and then, or your emotions. And then say, if there is organizational support, then maybe it can help you. Mm-hmm. So that's like a first step in this, is to understand what could reduce the effects of experience of discrimination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we can talk about your teaching now. That's fine. I'm not I'm not stuck on any kind of script. This is all just is just flowing naturally as it comes to me. And so, I mean, since you brought it up, what what have your experiences been um teaching so far? Like especially teaching the effects of discrimination. Like I know you said that your students end up feeling um kind of alienated or just disappointed maybe, but like like how what's your experience been? Yeah, so when I first started teaching, I was really worried because I knew I'd be teaching about race. And where I, the University of Georgia is predominantly white. And so I wondered, well, I am a black person standing in the front of the classroom. Are they going to assume that I'm being biased? Mm -hmm. Because when it comes to race research, a lot of people assume that white people are more objective. Mm-hmm. And I worried about that. And I was like, well, you know, just try my best. But to my surprise, I feel like from the students I've taught so far that they feel like I don't I don't know. I don't want to say that. I, I think that they appreciate the fact that I can bring in my own perspective into it as someone who's also lived these experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I've had and the responses to my students about the content ranges based on their race. So in my race classes, people self-select. So people are already a little interested in the topic. I'm not forcing it upon them, like in an intro class or something like that. So at least they're interested in it. And usually the responses I get from my white students, a lot of them feel a lot of guilt and shame. Um, some of them feel defensive and then for my black students a lot of them just feel angry and sad and you know I'm I'm also teaching them new things but also reminding them of a lot of what they already knew Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a challenge is to balance that in the classroom those different emotions Um, the first day of class I usually tell them I usually start by saying by asking them like when you think of racism who do you think of what do Mm -hmm. you think of and it's usually 
their grandpa their racist grandparents or the KKK or you know very overt racist things like that. But they don't think about themselves mm-hmm. and how they react in ways that are racially biased. But I so I tell them that racism is not necessarily about you hating people, you being a bad person, because people usually equate equate racist with bad. Mm-hmm. But like we you can act in ways that are racially biased that does not necessarily that you may not be doing it purposely with the thought of I hate these people. Mm-hmm. Because even you showing preference to white people as a white person may result in you being racially biased towards other people mm-hmm. because you're not including them. Mm-hmm. So I try to explain to them that this class is not about making you feel bad because of your privilege, but it's but I expect that everyone will feel uncomfortable and I want you to sit with that so that you can grow because I'm not going to expect that you're going to just be comfortable with everything I say because I'm challenging a lot of their perceptions about how the world works and what their parents told them about race and having them to be able to open up, I have to make sure that they feel safe. Mm-hmm. And that's really important to me. And that's how I try to set the setting or mm-hmm. set the tone for my class going forward throughout the semester and to be able to have them be comfortable in this mixed race setting for my white students. A lot of them grow up with the thought of you're not supposed to talk about race because it's impolite. And I have my students of color who talk about race all the time. So that getting them to both groups to be able to speak openly in the classroom is a challenge. Mm-hmm. And making sure that both groups feel that they're respected and heard is important to me. Mm-hmm. To be able to have that dynamic. You saw me typing because I'm trying to remember the name of a book um, that's about Georgia. And I can't remember the name of the county, but there's a county. And so I'm, this is just purely like my own uh, stuff. Um, have you ever, like, are you familiar with, I think it's Fulbright County or Forsyth County in Georgia? Smith County? Yeah. I, there's a county in Georgia where in the early part of the 20th century, there was um, a lot of racial violence. And basically the county, the white people in the county drove out everybody who wasn't white. And it remained functionally a, an all-white county up until like 19 the 1980s um and so i just like just curious because the the impoliteness thing um is really interesting i've never i've never encountered that before um my students my white students don't like talking about race because they're very fragile <laughs> they and they are uh like not even tiptoeing on eggshells like they they do not, they don't want to engage with it. Um, and the ones who do end up very angry. Um, so I was just kind of wondering if you had, if you had ever encountered students from that particular part of Georgia um, before that has this really, like, I don't want to say bizarre, but like kind of gross, like past. And I, so and I don't I remember if it, was, if it was Fulbright or Fulsight or Forsyth. I forget the name of the county. Um, I've that book before. Yeah, but I will say that the politeness thing is more a modern way Mm -hmm. of approaching race talk, um, because we have this whole colorblindness ideology, Mm -hmm. and so for them, they say, "Well, I don't see color. I don't see color. So that means that 
I don't want to talk about race. Yeah. Uh, so I have not because because like I said, it's a race class, so people self-select in. So I haven't had many students that are super angry. At least they don't tell me that to my face, or you know, in during in class. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I haven't had that experience. Um, but I will say that on my student evaluations. So I've taught that class twice, and both times I've had one student say something to the lines of, I'm teaching them how to hate white people. And I'm like, <laughs> I have this one student, and I keep trying to figure out who it was, because <laughs> all semester you didn't say one thing, and then I have a whole uh, bunch of other review um, evaluations from my other students saying that I've changed the way they ta- thought about race, Yeah, and, you know things like that, but I always have just one person. And, you know, I always try to, you know, think about, like, try to reach out one person and what I could have done differently, but I'm like, I don't think they ever said anything in my class because (laughs) (laughs) not figure out who it was because they don't openly say these things because they know it's impolite or not politically correct to say things like that out loud. Yeah. No, don't, um, you'll make yourself crazy trying to figure out, like, every negative comment on your course evaluations um especially when you have semesters where you have comments that contradict each other you know even if it's something like she assigned too much work and she didn't assign enough work and you're gonna (laughs) you're almost like self-destruct trying to figure out the answer there um yeah but you know i did have one experience that i was like completely shocked so i was teaching this course it was just social psychology just general social psychology mm-hmm. and then when i got when we got to a chapter talking about race so i started my lecture and i told them really excited to talk about you know race because it's my subject area and i got to like the first slide where i talked about the social social construction of race and i had one student raise her hand and she said well why is it okay for people to be mean to white people and i was like what? Where is this coming from? We're talking about the social construction of race, and now we're, and now you're asking me about people being mean to white people. And so from that point, I was like, okay, well, let's just talk about this then. <laughs> so it, the class, my whole lesson got derailed yep. because I was like, let's just talk. And this is like, most of my class was juniors and seniors. And the types of things they were saying shocked me. I could really? not believe that they got to this point where they're about to graduate and still thought this way about race. So in that class, it was majority white. I maybe had like five or six students of color in a class of 45. And I had students saying that trying to defend slavery and saying, well, slavery had you know, there slavery had um, there were some good things about slavery, like it helped the economy, it helped the country, and um, I was shocked. <laughs> I was, and, oh, it's so gross! Yes, and I'm standing from the class thinking, oh. how do I react to this in a way that teaches them without just completely just, you know getting angry so you know i'm i'm trying to yeah i'm just talking to them and just you know we're trying to take them seriously in this conversation because i could tell that they hadn't really had a chance to have conversations like this with person of color yes so i'm standing there 
try you know talk to them about you know so we talked we talked about why slavery was bad you know like i don't i couldn't believe i had to explain to them why slavery was bad and then um i also talked to them about why asking people especially people who are asian american where they're from was disrespectful and they just felt like well i should be able to ask people where they're from and i said well do you ask your white friends where what country they're from like why why do you like and so once you said well i that's just a way for me to get to know them and so well why does it matter where what country they're from you know usually ask them that yeah. so you usually ask people who are not asian american that and i tell them like you know i wasn't even born in america and since moving to georgia i could count on one half people asking me what country i'm or where i'm really from, from. yeah so it's not about you just getting to know someone like this is rooted in your thoughts and uh, like assumptions and stereotypes about people being foreigners mm-hmm. like they can't really be american so that was an interesting class to say the least i was absolutely shocked and then i realized the next time i teach this class we're gonna need a lot longer about race (laughs) because that came out of left field and um so after the class i was like oh my gosh i don't even know if i handled that well if i taught them anything and the next class, I gave them recommendations about books about if they want to learn more about race, because this was towards the end of the semester. Yeah. So they want to learn more about race. Here are some books written by people of color and really great books. And then I had a student email me um, when summer started asking me for the list that I sent or that I showed them with these books so that she could read over the summer. And I was just like, oh, great. I got one person at least <laughs> that's all that you can do sometimes right and even that even that moment where you had to like uh do a course correction for them like i'm sure i'm sure there were students in there who that was life-changing for i hope so and the way i approach even talking about race is that this is just a first step i just want to open their eyes I know I'm not going to completely mm-hmm. change them and turn them into people marching on the street for Black Lives Matter, but mm-hmm. at least if I can just shift their perspective a little bit mm-hmm. so that they can have a sociological imagination to be able to understand and empathize with people mm-hmm. who don't look like them, then at least I did my job. Yeah. And this, they need repeated exposure. Like, I can't, like, the one semester is not enough to change a lifetime of. Yeah you know, training about ideologies, about race. And then when they leave my class, they're going to be surrounded by them. And they're Mm -hmm. going to be tempted to just revert back to their old ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. So I just, I I know I can't completely change them, but if I can just open their eyes a little bit, then I feel like I've actually accomplished something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I totally sympathize (laughs) with that for sure. Um, I've done stuff in class before, so I, w- I was asked to teach our um, our sociology of minorities class, and I I've asked if I could change the name of the class, and I was told I couldn't. Um, and so on the first day of class, like I'll I'll start by saying like, um, this is Soch two fifty one. Why do you think I hate the name of the class? And they'll sit there and like, well, why why do you hate the name of the class? And we talk about like, well, I'm going to teach this as sociology of oppression because minority implies like less value, and that's not what that's not the message that we're trying to do. So anyway, I would do a thing in that class where we would look at memes about white people, 
<laughs> in a majority white class and and like go through like I find like lists of them and and go through everything on the screen and um and talk about like why why is this funny like why are you guys laughing at these and the students of color in there are like laughing harder than anybody else but and and have told me that like it's surreal <laughs> like to do to have this conversation with a white professor in a majority white class and we talk about how like comedy is a power thing just like anything else right and so you this is this is all a power dynamic and so like comedy is supposed to punch up comedy works better when it's punching up and not down um racist jokes are punching down but white people jokes are punching up right and so that's why like your jokes about white people not having any white people being bad cooks or white people can't dance or, or whatever, you know, that's why those are hysterical. (laughs) And, and like, do you get it now? And like, they, they kind of do. Right. Um, but maybe that's something only that I can do because I'm a white professor. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I don't, I really don't know how like the power stuff even comes across when I'm talking about it. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think about that too. And I, purposely try to be as cheerful as I can um, and just to make sure that my students are not thinking that, you know, I'm just, you know, feeling the stereotype of this angry, angry black woman, angry mm-hmm. about racism and all this stuff, because I feel like they may be less receptive towards that. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know. But, I mean, it's also my natural disposition to be very cheery anyways, but I don't know if I go overboard. But (laughs) usually, um, you know, I try to make my class as personalized as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually I have about 40, 45 students in my class, and I try to learn everybody's name. Mm -hmm. And students are usually surprised when I know their name. Uh, because sometimes they don't talk, and I just like refer to them at, like by their name when they talk to me after class. And I mm-hmm. wasn't like, "Oh, you know my name?" Like, of course I know your name. I grade all your work. Yep. Um, so usually I start class by saying "Hello, everyone," and then I make them respond to me. So I don't know if it's like an elementary school type thing. They're like, "Hello, everyone." Hello. <laughs> so that's usually how I start class. Just by like saying "Hello, like pay attention." We're all here together, and I even had like. I didn't realize how important it was to them until I was doing finals, a uh, final exam, and then I just said, "Okay, here's your exam. Go ahead and start." And I was supposed to was like, "You didn't say hello to us." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Oh, sorry. I didn't realize that was so important to you guys." I yeah. didn't to show up my evaluation. Like, oh, she's always gives such a great greeting. <laughs> but yeah, so it's nice that that tone just to, I guess. Make them see me as a person and more comfortable yeah. with me, uh, so they'll be more willing to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, what you said about jokes is very spot on. I haven't had I, don't, I haven't had much talks about jokes, and but no, what you did say it made me think about one student who asked me um, if there was such thing as white culture, and I was like, <laughs> well, of course there's such thing as yeah. white culture. Yeah. <laughs> She was like, what do you, I was like, she was like, no, I can think of like, maybe like Southern culture, you know, but I was like, no, there's definitely a white culture, but it was hard for her to see it because, yeah. you know, I guess white people don't think of themselves necessarily as like a group, a community. Mm-hmm. And so it's more like regional, like I'm a Southerner, I'm a Northerner, mm-hmm. you know, from California or something like yeah. that. So, um, 
yeah, it was hard for me to explain to her. I mean, it was after class, but it was hard for me to yeah. explain to her what white culture was. But I was trying to tell her what you think about the music and mm. the language and the terminology that white people use. You could think of the ways that there are white cult that, that there is a white culture. Yep. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two things that I think students don't get with that is that number one, like white culture and mainstream culture are not necessarily synonymous, but basically, for all intents and purposes, are. And like they don't they don't realize that. And so like there's conversations that you can have about how like you know the students of color will know more about white culture than white students will know about a white culture or b like black culture, right? Um, because the white students don't realize that like like I said, their stuff is mainstream. Like they wouldn't recognize like Taylor Swift as like white culture, <laughs> right? When very clearly she is, um, or like even like. So I, I'm in northeastern Pennsylvania, so I'm in, like, the heart of, like, Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel country, right? Mm-hmm. Like, clearly, like, icons of, of that generation of white culture. The other thing that white students don't realize is, like, how much they're engaged in symbolic ethnicity. And while they may think that, like, they're actually repping, like, their Italian or Polish or whatever ancestors that whatever culture came over from Europe has been very Americanized. Right. And like, if they went, if they went back to whatever country they, their, their ancestors came from in Europe, like they wouldn't, they wouldn't recognize any of the food or, or anything, but they, because we're Americans, we think that everything in the world revolves around us and they just don't, they don't believe that. And like the symbolic ethnicity thing is fun, is fun too, like as a way to, to get at like, what are they, what are they talking about with race and like the ways that white students internalize this. So like, I have a very Polish last name. Um, my, uh, the other half of my family came here from England in like 1630. Um, and so I, I will tell them like, do I have the option of just change? Like I've always identified as a Polish American, but I can, can I just be British now? Like, is that a thing I can do? And they'll look at me and like, but like your last name, Doctor Wilzak, is is not like. But I could just change it. Like it doesn't matter. It's just a name, and they get like again, like like a short circuiting kind of look. Like, but you're not. But how could somebody just decide what they're gonna do? And like, but you're white. You're an American, right? I mean, that's what Americans get to do, and nobody else really necessarily can. And I, that's, I think, kind of helped some like these memes also show like what white culture is yeah just the fact that you can make a meme about something shows that there is some kind of shared meaning about mm-hmm. what um trying to think of like one of these memes that i've seen recently but just like what that means for white people and white culture mm-hmm. But of course, you know, being in the dominant group is easy to say, well, you know, we don't have a culture. No one has to put that on you. You can decide mm-hmm. to be in it or not, or mm-hmm. accept it or, or not accept it. The same thing with the symbolic ethnicities. Mm-hmm. You can accept it or you can't, or you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Like, no one is forcing that upon you. Even if, unless you have a very thick accent, I guess, that is noticeable, then maybe people will be like, no, you have to identify as this ethnicity, and we will only see you as that. But other than that, yeah. I can, they could just, they could just, just be white, you know? <laughs> That's what I am. I'm just white. Like, I've to say that. Like, I'm just white. <laughs> what do you do? Um, or have you thought about, like, what you can do to help students 
point their anger when you have these conversations. Like, not anger about, like, I'm a white student who feels victimized, but, like, students who recognize how inequitable and unjust the, like, the entire system is. Um, Have you thought about ways to help them, like, direct their anger towards something meaningful? Yeah, I have thought about that. And especially because when I was an undergrad learning about these things, it made me angry too. It made me feel helpless. Like, what can I do about this? So what I, what I usually do is incorporate research that shows how to, I guess, lessen the effects of racism, Mm -hmm. like actionable things that they can do in their everyday lives to reduce that. Like I have them take like the implicit association test so that they can understand their own implicit biases. And I have them write a reflection about that. And usually, so I'll, I'll have them do the implicit association test, the black, white, and the black, white weapons one, mm-hmm. and then have them write a reflection about what they thought their biases were. And, you know, are they, how they felt about their results. Usually the white students will have, a greater association of black people with weapons, so showing more bias towards black people. And the students of color is kind of mixed, but a lot of them actually have association with white people and weapons. So I have them do that just so that they can challenge their own beliefs. And what I say is I had you do this because I want you to realize what your own implicit biases were so that you can do something about it. Because for in order for you to enact that change, you have to realize where you fall short, and the ways that you can uh, that ways that you can help to counter these implicit biases is to consume more media that has greater representation and diversity of mm-hmm. people who you have these biases about, mm-hmm. and for you to you know read books by people who write things like that, and for you when you you know make these uh, stereotypes in your head like these quick stereotypes about like oh let me cross the street because there's a black person right here, for you to be able to say I recognize this as an implicit bias I need to challenge that. So that so I try to tell them actual ways for them to work on it without them just being like, oh, throw my hands up, society is mm-hmm. screwed, so whatever. Because for them, a lot of their solutions are, well, when all the old people die, all this will go away. But then I tell them that they are <laughs> so the research about little kids mm-hmm. showing these implicit biases towards people of color. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the old people. Mm-hmm. You can't just wait for grandma and grandpa to die <laughs> and then say racism is over. Like, you are benefiting from the system of inequality and you have to be willing to lose some of that power and privilege. Mm -hmm. So I try to give them actionable ways to counteract that and show them research, at least for my students of color. Like, for example, we have, um, I teach about stereotype threat and how when you have these stereotypes that black people don't do as well on cognitive tests that they actually end up underperforming. So what I do is also show them the research that shows well, if you don't make race salient, then you're more likely to do just as well as white students. But when you have these ideas about race in your head, it makes you do worse. So if they were to become teachers later in their lives, then that's something that they would be you know, cautious of doing is to not make race salient in those moments and to also consume images or show images to children mm-hmm. and, and to themselves as well of smart and powerful black people mm-hmm. to show that, you know, to counteract these images that uh, black people are not as competent and are, and are lazy. So I do uh, incorporate in my teaching 
way, like tangible ways that they can help to reduce the effects of racism. Well, you know, just to help them feel like they have some kind of agency, but also realizing that it's not just about individual action, but that we also need structural change. We can't just say, I'm just going to be a better person. You can be a better person all you want, but unless we change the way our institutions are built to only benefit white people, we are not going to be able to reduce inequality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I had a conversation yesterday with um, Dr. Kerry Yazid um, about this very thing and like how, especially now with the pandemic, um, so like I think a lot about how how universities are sometimes unwitting, like oftentimes very intentionally, like themselves tools of oppression and like how the pandemic is making that not worse, but like much more clear, right? So like just preventing either students of color, like well, students of color or I guess students in poverty um, from being successful under these new conditions with the expectation that they like this pandemic is nothing. Right. And so like, I I think that like what you were saying, like making race salient or not, um, like not only is it something that we should be thinking about, especially when it comes to like these institutions that are supposed to be meritocracies, um, I don't know. Like, I just think it's something that's really very visible, like more visible now than it has been. Like the pen, like I, I don't like like the silver linings conversation, but like, I guess the silver lining of the pandemic is that we are as sociologists, we are, we are needed now more than ever before. You know what I mean? Like just to be able to, yeah. to show how these, how this oppression happens. Yeah. And I mean, we, just watching the news, like we're clearly needed. I was <laughs> watching um, CNN, and they were talking. There was an anchor who was in Louisiana, and he was like, you know, they're talking about the disproportionate number of Black people dying from COVID, and he said, "Well, you know, I'm in the land of gumbo. You know, a lot of salty, fatty food." I'm like, "Are you seriously blaming gumbo on Black people dying disproportionately from COVID? Like, you can't be serious. Like, people need to be educated on how." <laughs> Uh, how these institutions create these disparities like it's not just people eating their diets like you have you can't talk about that without talking about their access to insurance hospitals like transportation to even get to appointments like mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's very frustrating and it's definitely needed um, and to what you were saying about um, how our university so I talked to my students about um, colorblind policies mm-hmm. and how they create recreate inequality because if you are just applying these broad stroke solutions without recognizing who will be negatively impacted by it based on race then all you're going to do is cre- recreate that inequality over and over again. Mm-hmm. The example I use is voting rights laws so when they create voting rights laws saying that you need an ID to vote what it unintentionally or intentionally, if you're a cynic, what it does <laughs> is that like because black people are more likely to not have um, that not have IDs, then what that law does is make it so there are more black people who aren't able to vote. And mm-hmm. when you just apply these policies and say, well, you know, this is applying to everyone, then you are recreating inequality. Mm-hmm. So you have to take into consideration 
what are the vulnerable groups that will be negatively mm-hmm. impacted by this policy that I'm passing? So when universities told students don't come back to campus, and they didn't even have the foresight to think about how are our international students who don't have anywhere to go going to be impacted by this? Mm-hmm. So when you're creating these policies, it's like you definitely, definitely need to take into consideration take into consideration the vulnerable groups that are impacted. Because mm-hmm. the people who have the most privilege will be, it'll be easy. I don't have an idea. I'll just go to DMV and get it. Um, but it, but it does end up hurting people at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then like, like not just perpetuating the cycle, then like, I, I'm just thinking about like, again, from a higher ed standpoint, like pandemic policies that are pushing students away when everybody's like climbing over themselves to attract students to their schools. And they don't recognize that like, it's it's not it's almost like I guess like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, kind of. But even then, I have a hard time buying that, right? So like, every school wants to attract like the high performing students and and whomever, and we're pushing away high performing students because we're not taking into consideration ways in which they're vulnerable, and then are like, oh my god, what can we do to get high performing students here? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it just allows yeah. people to like to continue like the well-meaning liberal kind of like well we tried to attract students of color here but we don't know what happened like well what happened was that, that you had really dumb ideas about how to how to manage this disaster you know and yeah. students talk to each and, other yeah and it's like is it a real commitment or is it just to show face yeah so you bring them here and then you don't ensure that there are um, things in place to make sure that they end up graduating and are successful. Mm-hmm. So you don't change anything about your climate. You don't change anything about your resources and you just say, well, if they drop out, they just weren't a good fit. Yep. And continue to allow racist faculty to be racist without any kind of uh, reprimand or anything like any kind of meaningful yeah. reprimand. Um, which is a whole other problem, <laughs> like not something that we can solve today on this podcast. But so let's let's try to find something positive to end this end your conversation with. I don't want to. I I don't want to go into this. No. Um. Yeah. Carrie and I had this this big thing about leadership and hiring yesterday, and I had to, like the same realization. Like I don't want to send people. I just like we don't want students to be angry. And, and have nowhere to direct it. We don't want people listening to this to feel angry and then just cynical about higher ed. Like, what can we do? Like, what can we, what can we tell people as a, as a way to like direct their, uh, energy about like ways to, ways to improve like our classrooms with regard to race. Yeah. So I would say vote. Very important is to vote <laughs> yes. people to vote, um, and then also in our classrooms, like you know, a lot of it is just left to the individual instructor to figure out. Um, in terms of like graduate teaching, we get a lot of training on pedagogy in my department, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, there I don't know if faculty get like pedagogy refreshers and you know, how to deal with diversity and inclusion in the classroom. So it's more if you are interested in it, then you're more likely to learn about those things and use those resources. So 
I would just say for all of us to be accountable to ourselves and hold our colleagues accountable as well. Um, because, you know, we are like, for example, if a student comes to you and say, well, you know, professor so-and-so said this to me, you know, sometimes we're like, Oh, sorry, that happened to you. But that, that person is never held accountable. That complaint is never brought to that person. So mm-hmm. how can we expect our students to feel comfortable if we're not creating that environment in our classroom. Mm-hmm. So I would say to hold each other accountable, to hold ourselves accountable, um, and to also share your resources. That's something that we do amongst our graduate instructors is we will have conversations about our teaching and say, this worked for me in my class, this happened to me in my class, use this. If, you know, use this. I had a, if, you know, someone comes to me and say, oh, my students are really struggling with this concept, Here's an activity that I used so that, you know, that worked for my students, Mm -hmm. try it. And that will help us create a community where we are building each other up Mm -hmm. to be better educators for our students so that I don't have to have students in my classroom who tell me that slavery had some benefits. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Vote not just in the presidential election, but like local elections matter incredible yes. amount like pay attention to your your local reps and if you can figure out like anything about the judges that might be on your ballot like dig into the judges a little bit because they're incredibly important too um yeah and hold them accountable even yes. if you vote for them <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah yeah for sure um so thank you so much for doing this melissa i really appreciate it of course Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured, and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenure Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.